Um, depending on what your specialization is in the EMP value chain, um, really zero in on exactly where you can provide the most benefit and value and how you can connect with people so that you have that job security. Because honestly, kind of having that sense of where do I want to end up? Am I completely open? Would I be open to being in, you know, California? Would I be open to being in Midland, Texas? You know, it's, yeah. there's all sorts of different kind of things you need to consider. Are you open to going international? You know, if so, then you really want to be thinking about what types of companies, because they're, they're tend to be bigger, right? Total, Shell, Equinor. Um, All right. Welcome, welcome, welcome to today's podcast on how to get a job. I'm super excited for today's episode. We're going to be talking about a really, really fascinating industry and how to break into one of the world's biggest industry, and that's oil and gas. And to talk about this particular industry, um, I have an amazing expert with us today. I have Amanda Rico. She is the owner of Rico Editorial Services, and she's been in this industry for a long time. So she, uh, when I wanted to talk about this industry, right, um, because it's, it's a massive industry that is maybe not talked about as much as it should be, which is an amazing career path. I thought of no one better than Amanda. So Amanda, welcome. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, yeah thanks, Daniel. No, I appreciate you inviting me. And yeah, I mean, oil and gas is, is definitely a huge industry, big sector, a lot of different intersections between other industries as well. And um, the sector is diversifying and creating new webs, <laughs> uh, especially in the past few years, kind of here since COVID. So I think it's a, it's a really relevant topic. So look, um, I'm interested to know what got you hooked into this industry, right? This, this is, um, you've been doing it not for a year, for two years, for a long time. So uh, maybe tell us a little bit more about you, you, you know, kind of like your origin story on how you became a resume writer, cover letter, like, you know, career coach expert in this um, amazing industry. Yeah, definitely. So my background is as an English nerd. So I come from the space of being in, uh, you know, English teaching, writing. I have my bachelor's, master's, and PhD all in English, um, University of Oklahoma and Texas A&M. Um, and so I taught resume writing for a long time. And there was a very specific way that we were taught to teach. And the more that I started realizing that it wasn't exactly the same in real life as I was teaching in tech writing to my students, the more that I thought, no, I should probably kind of diversify this teaching and, and broaden it out and actually work with clients to be able to help them. So oil and gas, I kind of fell into that because my husband uh, was a petroleum engineer at University of Oklahoma. So I still remember him asking me if he could uh, <laughs> get my help on writing a a paper on diamond drill bits. So I remember reading about that and being like, what is this thing? And uh, so, yeah, the more that I learned, the more that I wanted to know. And eventually the more that I worked with people on their resumes, cover letters, LinkedIn profiles, the more that I realized that that sector was very unique. Um, the people were very unique, very uh, down to earth, hardworking, uh, really funny. <laughs> I, I love oil and gas people. They're, they're very, uh, assertive kind of their their personality meshes well with mine so i tend to really really like working with them but but yeah that's kind of how i got into it the intersection between english and then kind of my, my husband's now husband's interest at the time he was uh just a guy i was dating yeah. <laughs> amazing so i so the, i interviewed tons of career coaches on this podcast right and 
different niches, different industries, different, uh, whether it's, you know, level entry careers or senior executives. What, what I found is that 80% of the job search, whether you're a student right of college studying STEM, or you are a, somebody looking to break into the C-suite in consumer packaged goods, right? 80% of the strategies could be very similar, right? You, you need to have an understanding of clarity where you want to be. Uh, you need to focus on networking and visibility. You need to have a resume. Uh, you need to interview for the role, whether if it's a level entry role or a CEO, you probably have more interviews the higher you go up, right? Um, and so there's a lot of commonalities on the process that you need to do. But at the same time, there's a 20% that is very, very different. And that's going sh- to be very different on the industry. It's going to be very different on the stage of your career. And so that's like kind of my question to you is like, what do you think is the, ma- the biggest difference that job seekers don't realize or think about or prepare on when looking to break into the oil and gas uh, industry versus maybe other industries? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Oil and gas is a big but tiny sector. Um, so everyone ends up knowing everyone else. There are very few degrees of separation between us. Um, like, for instance, I have uh, around 38,000 followers on LinkedIn, but I have the majority of the oil and gas core in the States in my mm-hmm. in my connections, <laughs> right? So the people that I meet at the American Association of Drilling Engineers events or, you know, all of the top geologists, the people from Society of Petroleum Engineers, all these different organizations, I know a lot of these different people through these connections. And the more that you can connect with connectors mm-hmm. and find those different degrees of separation, the more job security you're going to have. So I always tell, you know, especially students who are just trying to get in the market, take on leadership positions as much as you possibly can in SBE, in AADE, in AAPG, which now it's into a different organization. But um, depending on what your specialization is in the EMP value chain, um, really zero in on exactly where you can provide the most benefit and value and how you can connect with people so that you have that job security. Because, yeah, it's it's a sector where you can get a really good reputation or you can get a really bad yeah. reputation. So, yeah. I think it's interesting because, I, I've, you know, you see that, that same type of uh, small, even though it's a massive industry, like, Everyone knows each other. And I, I experienced the same thing at PepsiCo. Um, I was there for six years, right? And it's not its not a long time, but it's also not a year. And it's really interesting to see all the people that I went, because I was part of this management training program. So um, all these individuals that were all hired at the same time were essentially hired to be the future leaders of, of the organization. And every year, people will leave for other companies and they would go leave to go work for competitors, for Procter & Gamble, for Coca-Cola, for Nabisco, for Kraft. And then you would see people from Coke come to PepsiCo. And so you start seeing this mingle of, of web and everyone ends up knowing each other. And you would go to like a trade show or, you know, they would have really big like, you know, CPG trade shows. And you would start seeing your old coworkers who are now your competitors, but at the same time, your friends. And, 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 it, and you're right. If you have a bad reputation it's not going to only affect your career at PepsiCo. It's going to affect your career at your the other companies and vice versa. I also remember when I left PepsiCo and I left PepsiCo not because of I didn't like PepsiCo. I actually loved PepsiCo. Um, I left because I wanted to start my own business. I still remember getting messages from coworkers who were now like directors or managers at Coca-Cola and Nabisco who were like, hey, 
if you ever want to leave, I have a spot on my team that I think you'd be great at. And so like, that's like, I never applied for these jobs and they would come like, you, you still happy being an entrepreneur? I have a spot on my team that just opened up. <laughs> yeah, job security. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had a similar, you know, experience kind of getting, trying to get recruited back to some of the positions that I was in where it's the more that you have that network working for you yeah. on the back end, the better your chances are of staying employed. And I know that sometimes what's difficult is that, especially for new career grads, um, it can feel really insurmountable. It can mm -hmm. feel like, well, I already need to have that done. I need to already have this in place. You know, how do I even get that? How do I get that far? And that can be especially difficult if someone is international. Um, you know, if there's language barriers, things like that, uh, which we run into a lot in oil and gas. Um, and there are certain companies also that will tend to hire, you know, people who need sponsorship yep. or things like that um, more often than usual, like Slumberjay or SLB now. They've changed their names. Um, but yeah, but it all depends on if you want to even be in with a service company or an operator. So there are different environments that you won't know where to start unless you start with networking yep. and unless you start asking relevant questions and having those conversations with people so that. And that, that comes from volunteering that comes yeah. from volunteering for leadership positions and things like that. So I'm seeing like a, a trend on some of your answers that you, you, you talk a lot about like networking, being involved in some organizations, like, you know, some of the trade organizations, because that's going to allow you to build the relationships. Now I wonder like how, how different is that when you're a college student and you're part of the student clubs that extend versus, because I also know that you specialize more working on the professionals, executive levels. How does that change as you get, um, as you grow within your career? Yeah. So that depends on which area. So if someone is private equity level, if someone is high level, super majors kind of with Exxon, your networking is going to vary mm -hmm. based off of those things. So you need to know specific players within your space, um, depending on how high you want to go, what, what position you want to be in. For instance, if someone wants to be a COO at a private equity, you better get your butt moving, <laughs> you know, really getting your name out there and, and connecting with people in the private equity space in, you know, Dallas, Fort Worth and San Antonio and Houston and Denver, um, or else people are going to go with the people they know, even if they don't do a good job at it. Yeah. So that's, that's where kind of knowing the space that you're in and knowing which level you want to be at is really critical and even identifying which types of companies would even allow you to get to that level. Yeah. So some super majors may cap you out at something like an advisor or a consultant or a subject matter expert, an SME. You want to know that beforehand, if that's even a goal for you, if that's something that you need to redirect and maybe go more of the mid-level company route because yep. super majors aren't going to be a good option, you know? So there's, there's a lot of wiggle room there to figure out. I want to kind of explore this a little bit more because when, when, and, and I'm, I'm, t I'm talking from, from the perspective of what I know, it's like, we all know the big companies, right? The Shells, the Exxons, but that's like, that's not the whole industry, right? So what are some other paths? What are some other like, if I'm looking to break into oil and tech and maybe I don't feel like uh, like I'm too intimidated for the big uh, oil majors, right? What are some other things that I should be looking for? Is there um, – and how do I find these opportunities? If I'm, I don't recognize some of those brands, right? Like those brands, they're so B2B. Like if I'm – you know, I might not even know they exist, right? Well, the first thing you want to identify is where you want to be. 
So I always tell people when I chat with them, you got to work backwards. So you want to reverse engineer the process. So if somebody tells me I have to be in California, then I'm like, you only got a few players there. Mm-hmm. You're going to want to look up you know, California Resources Corporation. CRC is going to be probably your biggest bet. Um, you may run into some smaller outfits, some environmental stuff, mm-hmm. um, but don't expect the same salary as oil and gas. Right. Other people, if they say, I have to stay in Denver, like, okay, good luck. But (laughs) right. So oil and gas is, is very, what I'm trying to get at is that oil and gas is very centralized in specific areas or regions within the U S. Yep. So your best bet is always going to be Houston. Yep. hundred percent. If you're not in Houston or you're not open to relocating to Houston, you really need to consider, you know, or reconsider oil and gas, (laughs) um, you know, Dallas, Fort Worth, that's kind of the Mecca of private equity, mm-hmm. um, you know, for people that want to get into that people who are in the land space or people who are reservoir engineers or production, they tend to be used really, really well in the private equity space in Dallas. Um, so honestly, kind of having that sense of where do I want to end up? Am I completely open? Would I be open to mm-hmm. being mm-hmm. in, you know, California? Would I be open to being in Midland, Texas? You know, it's, there's all sorts of different kind of things you need to consider. Are you open to going international? You know, if so, then you really want to be thinking about what types of companies, because they're, they're tend to be bigger, right? Total, Shell, Equinor. Um, There are a lot of other ones, but those are some of the bigs that are multinational companies. Um, Not even including the service companies like Schlumberger or Halliburton. Um, So it's important to kind of identify those things right up front and say, and that comes with having conversations, yeah. right? So you won't really know those things unless you have conversations and you put yourself in the middle of those conversations to just ask, yeah. you know, Hey, I see you've been with marathon. What was it like at marathon? Hey, I seen that you've been with occidental or oxy. What was your experience like at that company? Um, I think that a lot of new grads have a very, vague idea of what it's going to be like to work at an Exxon or work at, you know, a specific type of company. And whenever they get in, it can be a little bit of an eye opener, you know, for them to kind of realize that, oh, maybe this is more bureaucratic than I had wanted. Maybe I should have gone, you know, a a mid-level company route. Um, And sometimes it does come down to just getting that opportunity, that first opportunity, you get it under your belt and then you move on. So it's honestly how much strategy you want to put into it. It depends on the person. Yeah. Um, one thing I, I like, you focus a lot and you, and you it's talk about resumes and, and LinkedIn. Uh, I want to ask you a question about LinkedIn. Have you seen like a big difference when someone has focuses and uses their LinkedIn, they're active on LinkedIn versus someone who doesn't log into LinkedIn is, and, and they're not using it, especially more, uh, and have you seen that change as someone grows in their career as well? Yeah, hundred percent. Recruiters think you're really weird if you don't have a LinkedIn. <laughs> so if you don't have a LinkedIn, get on that. Um, since COVID things have changed. So if you would have asked me, you know, five, seven years ago, if LinkedIn was a big deal, I would have said, well, yeah, you probably need to have a profile, but it wouldn't have been to the level that I do now. Yep. So now you have to have a LinkedIn. It has to be built out. Um, and the reason for that is because whenever COVID hit, recruiters didn't really have the opportunity to go out and necessarily, you know, be going to all the events and meeting people. So, so many people were losing their jobs, getting laid off, furloughed, that they all piled onto LinkedIn, 
they all got higher level degrees, certifications, they all started optimizing their, you know, building out their profiles. So this is the state of the market now. Yeah. This is who you're competing with is a lot of people who have upped the ante to be way more competitive. So the less competitive you are on LinkedIn, the more competitive someone else seems. Yeah. So it's honestly much more about just being competitive on the market to make sure that you have a fully built out resume, cover letter, LinkedIn profile. So you come across as a whole package when someone finds. Absolutely. You know, I think what's interesting is like um, how it, LinkedIn has evolved throughout the years from you only use LinkedIn when you're looking for a job. And I think like if I would have been caught using LinkedIn in 2013, my boss would automatically think I'm looking for a job. While now today, I think if I'm working the same corporate America job and my boss sees that I'm on LinkedIn, he might actually think like he might not be as where he might say he's just looking for being up to date with what's going on in the business world. And I think that's something that's LinkedIn done uh, really well. And I think that happens in 2016 when Microsoft acquired LinkedIn and said, okay, how do, how do we make this platform the, the number one social media for, for, for work and own the work work? Cause I just think that's what Microsoft's overall strategy is. And I think it's really interesting because I, um, at least what I'm, what I'm seeing this trend is LinkedIn has always been coming your digital resume, but I had to me, I do think eventually it will be your resume. And the reason why I say that is because um, and I would love your, your thoughts on this because I know you've been on this platform for a long time and um, and you're like a top 1% creator is, you know, most people lie or exaggerate on their resume, right? And it's, if you, depending on how, what, what statistic or study you look at, it's between 75 to 85%, which is everyone pretty much, right? Yeah. And that's why <laughs> I think LinkedIn can solve some of that, right? Because you you're a lot you're a lot more likely to lie or exaggerate when you're creating a document a resume and you're applying it only it's only seen privately but when you show on your profile i can't no longer say that i managed 20 employees when the reality was 10 because if i put that on my linkedin profile people who i did work with uh can actually kind of call me out and also like linkedin is now confirming that you worked there through your work email right um they're also saying you know, you can say, hey, I'm proficient in Microsoft Excel as an example, yeah. right? Do you have the skills? Yeah. Do you have actually that skill certification? Do you actually do? But now you can go on LinkedIn learning and, and take some assessments that actually prove that you know those skills. Now, whether you took that assessment or not, that's a different argument. But the idea is that it becomes uh, that your LinkedIn profile becomes a more like a, a more truthful version of your resume. Um, and I think that's why LinkedIn bought uh, Linda.com. And is that you're able to, you know, upscale yourself in the platform and get all those certifications underneath, get recommendations. So now you can have recommendations from your previous boss and managers on your LinkedIn profile. Um, so I just, I, I just find it really interesting on how, uh, and I don't know that it will replace a resume in the next year or so. I think it's just a long-term thing, uh, but I do see li LinkedIn being incorporated to a lot of the applicant tracking systems, right? Like easy apply button and then that the applicant tracking system just gets all the information that it needs so it makes it more efficient but what have you seen uh in your end yeah so what i've seen is a combination of both i have seen the the easy apply button being helpful in some situations but i think the challenge with um with linkedin taking over the the document itself or you know a resume mm. document is that that document tends to need to be tailored for each job yep. so mm -hmm. if you only have one 
you know, yeah. LinkedIn resume doesn't do you a whole lot of favors whenever you're applying mm -hmm. to different roles. So I run into this a lot with oil and gas pros where they'll have a combination of operations, business development, and sales experience, for example. Well, that document needs to be tailored based off of the different specific roles that they're applying for. Maybe one is more ops heavy, maybe another is more business development heavy. That's a different resume, yeah. right? So I do see it as problematic for if things were to go the route where it's only a LinkedIn resume. Um, and from what I've heard from recruiters, I think we're a long way away from having mm -hmm. just a online resume. I think that there was a lot of buzz about having an online resume um, for a long time. And the recruiters kept going, nope, nope, nope. Like, because <laughs> they already use ATSs. Yep. They already use tracking systems. It's not really a problem for them to to just scan the document that's uploaded. Yep. Um, I do think that there's other ways that the HR process is trying to be optimized, like using higher view um, or things like that, which I think have their own problems um, and their own challenges. But I think that overall, I think we're still a ways away from seeing just a, a digital resume kind of taking over the document itself. Yeah. No, it, it, it makes sense. I think like that the, the biggest, I would say like the biggest argument on that is like, yes, like, your LinkedIn profile, you're not going to edit it every single day to, to, and you're applying to multiple companies at the same time. And they, you might have different versions of your resume to highlight different experiences or things that you've done that are more like, that are, that you're going to be more likely to be doing in the role that you're applying to. So that, that totally makes sense. Um, in terms of, of resume, like, tell me a little bit more about like, how should I, like job seekers be looking at your resume? How, how often should you be customizing your resume? Is it per role? Is it per like, is it per company per role? Um, and what are some advice on customizing your resume as well? Yeah, so it is per role. Um, you definitely want to be identifying your top strengths for that specific role and really zeroing in on a target for whatever that title is. So I always suggest whenever people are looking at job descriptions, you want to go immediately to the bottom portion that says job requirements. Mm. Ignore all that other stuff at first. Don't, mm. don't even pay attention to all that fluff. Go to the very bottom, look at job requirements and see how much you cover. So you want to cover at least 75 to 80% mm -hmm. of the requirements, right? So do you require sponsorship? Do you have 10 plus years doing X? Do you have yeah. XYZ skills? Do you have Tableau, Python? right? These hard skills that if you don't have them, a lot of times someone else will. Yep. And so you're going to be kind of wasting your time doing that. Now, what I have started noticing and I actually made a post on it last week, I think was putting out basically a what's going on to all the hiring managers. And I got tons of people respond to it. Um, the job market's really weird right now. Yep. So we have a lot of jobs opening up, seemingly a lot of positions for people to be applying to. Um, companies are back up to to hiring. Um, I mean, in oil and gas, we have a little bit of weirdness because we still have things like rigs being laid down. So it's it's kind of an odd market. But I think that what I was hearing over and over from the recruiters that responded to the post that I made, where it was like, what's up with hiring right now, was basically the gist of the post. Um, they all said that employers are looking for unicorn candidates and whereas before they were looking for, you know, maybe 65 to 75% fit. Yeah. Now they're looking for 90% fit and they think they can get it because there are so many candidates on the market yeah. 
And if they can't find that unicorn candidate, then they just try to find an internal candidate to take on that additional responsibility. So this is the kind of market that we're in right now. Um, you know, for those of you who are on the job market and are getting really frustrated with applying mm -hmm. or interviewing to jobs and then not hearing back, this is a lot of what's happening, right? So yeah. I think that during COVID that showed a lot of employers that they can keep their costs low and just basically overwork their employees. Yeah. <laughs> and if there's an employee that will take on that extra work, then hooray for them. Um, so yeah, there's, I think that's where a lot of this weirdness is coming from. Um, yeah. But yeah. That means you have to be extra competitive. You, you talked about um, looking at the job description and putting the requirements and trying to match, you know, 75% uh, or more, right? In, the, in this job market, maybe a little bit more. Um, one thing that I've noticed, and I can I work with my students a lot on is saying, hey, like all bullet points are not the same. Like if there's 10 bullet points, they're not all 10, 10%, right? It's just like your resume. The most important bullet points to the employer are the ones on the top, right? And just like the most important information on your resume are the ones at the top. Um, and so like, I always tell uh, my, my mentees is like saying like, Hey, like those top three, you know, it's the 80, 20 rules. Like, you know, what are the top three skills that they're looking for and making sure that's what you have. It's not just like, okay, you have the seven bottom skills. So then you're going to apply. No, I think you need to have two or the three, if not three of the three of the top skills, um, to, to be competitive in this job market. Yeah. I always see, you know, it's very common for me to see kind of early grads, um, early career, people kind of prioritizing the, I have great communication skills, or I have, yeah. you know, kind of the bottom rung of things that aren't really going to be as relevant, right? Of course, they want you to have communication yeah. skills, but that's more generic than having Tableau and Python. Mm -hmm. And right. So you're right. What ends up happening with a lot of job descriptions is that HR pros are reusing that job description. Yep. So they're basically keeping that bottom rung of bullet points mm -hmm. the same they're not changing that yep. they're changing the top yep. you know three to five yep. bullet points um and they're definitely changing the job requirement section yep. to make sure that they're meeting whatever that employer wants for them yeah so that's yeah that's kind of where and exactly with resumes top fourth portion yeah if you don't have a ton of quantifiable data in your top fourth portion where you were showing not just telling yeah just using a whole bunch of words, but you're showing them through examples, what you've done for that specific role to fit you're it's going to be less likely you get an interview. No, absolutely. Look, Amanda, this is awesome. Um, I kind of want to give you the opportunity. If people are listening to this podcast and they're either in the oil and gas, you know, um, how, you know, can you tell us a little bit more about the services you provide and how can someone uh, listen to this, connect with you and learn more about what you do? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I run, my own business, Rico Editorial Services. Um, I specialize in, you know, resume, cover letter, LinkedIn building. I also do career strategy sessions. Um, I tend to specialize in working with people who are in oil, gas, and energy specifically, because I know that sector the best. Yep. Um, so people who are trying to career transition either into oil and gas or out of oil and gas, or people who are trying to move up in the space. Um, I work with them on interviewing and um, networking and I really tailor it based off the client. Um, but yeah, the best way to find me is either through email or through LinkedIn. And on LinkedIn, I'm Amanda Rico PhD with the periods in the right spots. And I'm sure that Daniel, you can yeah. also probably share that so that they can have the right, right links for me. But, but yeah, I, I tend to stay, I 
check my messages every day on LinkedIn. Um, and yeah, I'm always open to new connections and chatting with people. Amazing. No, Amanda, thank you so much. Look, if you guys are listening to this, if you are interested in this amazing industry of oil and gas, just highly recommend connecting and following Amanda um, on LinkedIn. I'm going to definitely put uh, Amanda's LinkedIn profile link here so you guys can connect with her. And if you're interested in, in learning more about her services, definitely message her on LinkedIn. I think that's a, like the easiest kind of way. Um, and Amanda, thank you so much. Look, guys, if you're listening to this, uh, if you know someone that is interested in the oil and gas, uh, share this episode. And if you gain value at all, we don't run ads in this uh, podcast. So please like and subscribe. Uh, that's the best way for us to continue to grow and build this platform together. So thank you all for listening so much. Amanda, thank you for being here and catch you guys on the, on the next episode.